G'day, Dave here, and we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I think this is probably one of the more complicated passages uh, in 2 Corinthians. It's taken me a little while to get a handle on the argument here, what he's saying exactly. You might have felt the same way, or maybe it's been really clear for you. But how about we pray as we look at God's word that God will help us to understand it and to trust him to put it into practice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please give us insight and understanding. Open our hearts and our minds to see clearly your word and give us the confidence to trust you by putting your word into practice in the way that we live. And by your spirit, please be changing us to be more and more like Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start with an oxymoron. Uh, if you don't know what an oxymoron is, it's a contradiction in terms. Uh, people will say things like fighting for peace is an oxymoron. Or sometimes uh, when I was at university, people used to call the civil engineers oxymorons. Uh, how can you be civil and an engineer? The two don't go together. Well, here is one for you, WYSIWYG. WYSIWYG. And if you look at the front of your outline, you'll know that I've changed the title of the talk. In fact, I've changed it more than once in this series, but I've decided to call it WYSIWYG. And here's why it's an oxymoron. Because it means what you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. But of course, if you don't know that WYSIWYG stands for what you see is what you get, then it's not what you get. It's not clear at all. Well, enough silliness. Uh, what we have in this passage is Paul saying very clearly to his opponents, what you see is what you get. Uh, what I've been in my writing, I will be in public. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not pretending anything. I'm not trying to be somebody that I'm not. I'm not comparing myself with people around about me. I am who I am. I'm transparent before you. I'm transparent before God. And you need to recognize that. Because it seems that there has been so much criticism and attack of the Apostle Paul. Now, it's not academic. It's very important that we realize that this is deeply personal. Because Paul has been involved with the church in Corinth since it started. Uh, this is a church that Paul planted. Uh, he shared the gospel with people. They became Christians. He spent time with them. He nurtured them. He fed them the word of God. And he helped them to work through what it was to be a Christian. And he's seen them growing. But as he leaves them, he leaves them vulnerable to others. And it seems that people have come in, so-called philosophers, who've got different ideas, and they are calling Paul out. They're saying, Paul, he's not as good as he thinks that he is. No, really, these are people who are commending themselves. They're saying, we're the real thing. We're good. Look, don't look at Paul. He's not that impressive, really. He might seem it, but he isn't. Paul is under attack. And so there is quite a concern for the Apostle Paul, and he responds to it in this chapter. And you can see what lies behind it. Now, pick it up with me in verse 1, and I think we see something of what goes behind it. In verse 1, he says, By the humility and the gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold with you when away. Timid when face to face, bold when away. In other words, they're criticizing the Apostle Paul for being two-faced. He's all bark and no bite. If he can hide behind a quill and just write a letter, then he's going to be very powerful. But you get him face to face and he's as timid as a mouse. He's hopeless, really. This is the criticism. Uh, so too, they say that he's something of a non-event. 
Down in verse 7, you are judging by appearances, he says to them. Uh, He says in verse 10, For some are saying, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. I mean, you want to talk about good preachers? No, that's not who he is. You want to talk about people who are uh, able to conduct and command a crowd, people who have great influence, people who you just want to listen to, people who are powerful with their rhetoric and their humor and the way that they can kind of hook an audience? No, that's not Paul. See, they're criticizing Paul as being something of a non-event and they're comparing themselves. Uh, And they're saying, look, Paul is no comparison, really, to us. And so in verse 12, he says, uh, we do not dare to compare or classify ourselves uh, with people who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. Now, already we see some of Paul's critique here, but you can see there are people in the background. They've come into the church in Corinth and, and they're comparing Paul to themselves. And they bring their own letters of commendation. They commend themselves. Now, already we've seen this challenge in 2 Corinthians. Back in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said that he doesn't need a letter of recommendation because the church is that letter. You can see that people have been transformed and changed. They've become Christians. They're growing as Christians. And that is Paul's letter of commendation. God has been at work through Paul, and it's in their lives that you'll see it. And yet people come in, maybe with their degrees, maybe with their fancy references, and it seems they're even giving themselves references. Now, it might be uh, that I, Dave, say that Dave is a great bloke, which sounds kind of ridiculous, or it might be a group of people, and they're all commending each other. And you look at it, and it's really just a club for people who want to big note themselves. We don't know exactly, but there is serious criticism going on. And in one sense, it doesn't matter. Because we see, as we look through 2 Corinthians, that Paul's not obsessed with himself. He doesn't mind too much if people are giving him a bit of stick. He's happy enough about that. You see his attitude all through the New Testament. What does it matter if people are comparing themselves to me? What does it matter... If people go out and start up a church to compete with me, what matters is that the gospel is actually uh, bearing fruit and changing lives. Paul's not obsessed with himself. He doesn't take himself too seriously. And in one sense, it doesn't matter. But in another sense, it does matter. And it matters very seriously because Paul comes at the command of Jesus. Paul is called to Christ on the road to Damascus. He's saved, he's converted, he's forgiven by Christ. And Christ commissions him to be the apostle, the sent one to the Gentiles, to go to the Greek-speaking world. And Paul has started churches in Corinth and in other places. And he comes as the ambassador for Christ. And so if these people are to be saying of Paul, he's a nobody, he's in it for himself, He doesn't stack up. He's not good enough. We've got the real thing. Move on from Paul to us. What the danger is, is that they're calling the Corinthians to move on, not simply from Paul, but from Christ. And to move on from the gospel of Christ is to move away from any hope, any hope of life now and any hope of salvation for eternity. So it matters big time. See, Paul's not simply defending himself here. In fact, he's reluctant to defend himself, but he will not let Christ be criticized. 
And there's a clever response that he gives here. And we'll see more of this over the next couple of chapters that he'll get involved in boasting, but he'll turn that boasting on its head so that he's not boasting in himself. But look at verse 17. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, having said that that matters back then, that they realize that if they turn away from Paul, then they turn away from Christ. We need to see where we fit with this. So here's some application before we've even finished looking at the passage. There is pressure on us today to turn aside from Paul. Paul gets criticized all the time. People say all kinds of ignorant things, really. They say he's a misogynist. He hates women. They say that he's a racist. And uh, it's hard to believe that because he keeps going to every kind of different place and sharing the gospel with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. But they'll criticize him in whatever ways they can. And there are some people who effectively remove the writing of Paul from their Bibles. They'll say, yes, I'm a red-letter Christian. That is, I'll follow the teaching of Jesus. That's why they like these red-letter Bibles, some of them, because they can pick out all the words of Jesus, and that's enough for me. I follow Jesus. But Paul has warned about those who say, I follow Jesus, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas. You see, we need to be people of integrity who realize that Jesus sent Paul. And we don't have the right to say, well, I'm going to follow Jesus, but not Paul. Jesus sent Paul. Paul is the ambassador, the language he uses back in chapter 5 of Christ. So let's not turn aside from Paul, because it's as we listen to Paul, and he wrote two-thirds or a third or whatever it is of the New Testament. It's a substantial amount. As we listen to Paul, so we come to know more and more about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are the lessons in this passage for us then? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I think we need to recognize that humility is fundamentally Christian. Humility is fundamentally Christian. You see it in verse 1. By the humility and the gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Um, now, humility in the ancient world was not considered a virtue. It was considered weakness. You needed to be impressive. You needed to be powerful. You needed to have influence. You needed to stand out. You needed to demand your way. You needed to rule over others if you were to be taken seriously. And then Jesus steps into the world and he demonstrates in his life that you can be meek and you can be gentle and you can exercise from meekness and gentleness a powerful authority a loving and benevolent authority. You can teach and uh, encourage and instruct people and warn people from a position of humility and gentleness. And we see Jesus' humility expressed fundamentally in that passage in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Have the attitude of Christ Jesus, to be humble like Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, becoming a human being, living obediently to God the Father, going to the cross and dying for us. Even a death on a cross, a sin-bearing death. Such is the humility of Jesus. It's not about me, Jesus says. It's about you. See, humility is thoroughly Christian. You want to criticize the humble church leader. You want to criticize the timid, the quiet, uh, the, the gentle, 
They might not be the one who's up there on the platform. They might not be getting invited to international conferences. They might not have the cool designer jeans and the hipster beard and the clever tattoos. But friends, it's not that that God values. It's a humble and gentle spirit because that comes from Christ himself. And that's how Paul ministers and we see it here. But don't mistake humility and gentleness for wimpiness. Paul does not wimp out. Look at the way he speaks from verse 2. I I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. See, Paul's saying, whilst it might be the case that he acts in humility, don't mistake that for disinterest or for weakness. Now, Paul will go on the attack when he needs to. And he will attack not with human weaponry. He will attack with the weapons of the Spirit. He will go to war with the gospel of Jesus. He wants to see people's hearts and minds transformed. He's at war for changed lives. And if people come in and they're preaching a different gospel, he'll say to them, get out. In fact, if they insist on this in Galatians chapter 1, he says, let them be accursed. In other words, let them come under the judgment of God for preaching a different gospel. And one example, those who are saying you've got to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. He says, why don't they go the whole way and cut it all off? See, Paul is very, very clear on the fact that there is only one gospel of the Lord Jesus, and that is he died for our sins and he rose for our justification. We are clear on this. And Paul is saying, no, when when it comes to the truth, I'll back the truth. Even if it hurts, even if it's costly, even if it loses me friends, Because I want people to be with God for all eternity. The truth matters. He's at war for hearts and for minds. Thirdly, we see that the Apostle Paul is secure in his weakness. And and we can be too. See, they're judging by appearances. But he says to them, we belong to Christ just as much as they do. He's saying, just have a look. You know the story. You saw me in action. I lived among you, I spoke with you, I shared my life with you. You knew my attitudes, you could see what I valued, you understood my priorities, you can see how I acted towards you. And I did that because of Christ and you know that I am in Christ. And he will act with integrity. No, he might not be the most impressive preacher. And sure, he might not look as good as some of the others. He may not be on the front of Christianity today. He may not be one of those star preachers that are um, having hundreds of thousands of people download their sermons. But he's secure in his weakness. And we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12 that Paul understands that in his weakness, God can show his strength. And that as Paul became 
close to the point of death back in chapter 1 so that he would know the comfort of God. So he can now comfort people with the comfort that comes from God. Paul realizes that God actually works through cracked vessels. He, he doesn't have to be somebody who is powerful and impressive for God to be at work. In fact, he is very secure in his weakness because he knows then he's not going to get in the way. How easy is it for us to say that we are trusting in God and yet we're just going to the full extent of our own ability and unwilling to go any further. No, Paul is trusting in God to be at work through him. And lastly, Paul won't get caught up in the comparison game. Paul is being criticised as being inadequate and pathetic compared to the star qualities of the visiting philosophers and those who would seek to bring the Corinthians in and under their influence. But he's not going to be sucked into that comparison game because ultimately he knows that he is living and speaking and acting as a Christian, as an apostle, as a church planter, as a Christian leader. He's acting in such a way that the only one whose verdict really matters is God. He says, verse 18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He's not going to go kind of tit for tat. You think you're good. Look at what I've done. He's not going to try and big note himself at the expense of others. He doesn't care if other people are, are getting all the invitations, if they're getting all the glory, because Paul is concerned not to be a glory thief. He doesn't want to steal the glory that belongs to God. So he says in verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. These visiting philosophers, they're all in about big noting themselves. And what are they doing? They're pushing God out of the picture. And Paul's saying, it's only what God thinks that matters. And I'm going to live and speak and act in a way where God gets the glory and not me. Friends, you and I will come under attack from time to time. Uh, sometimes it will be our own doing. Let me confess to you, just in the last uh, few days, sent off an email, didn't think too much about it, did it late at night. It was a bit conflictual. I probably used some unhelpful language. It was a little bolder than it probably needed to be. And sure enough, it stirred up. Uh, I, I don't know, I can't speak on behalf of, of those who responded, but it it didn't go down too well. It certainly didn't help make the peace. It stirred trouble and it was unhelpful. It's easy for us to get involved in conflict. Sometimes we stir it up ourselves, but sometimes it's undeserved. Sometimes we're getting uh, treatment from other people that is right out of place. Sometimes we're being judged and criticized and condemned and put down. And we might be tempted to think we've got to respond. We've, we've, we've got to actually state our case. We've got to um, push them to treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Hey, we deserve a little bit of respect, don't we? No. No, let us respond with the humility and the gentleness of Christ. Let us realize it's not about us. It's about Jesus. That we don't deserve the glory. It's all the glory of the Lord. And so let us be focused on the gospel of Jesus and getting that right and living that out and being faithful and consistent in how we communicate that to others and living lives that adorn that, that back it up, that put our money where our mouth is. 
And if we get criticised for that, then so be it. Let's realise that ultimately we play to an audience of one, that God sees us, not only what we do and say, but he sees our motives, he sees our hearts. And so as we come before God, we can trust him to do what is right. And we don't need to be seeking to have ourselves vindicated. No, God will do what is right. So let's leave the judgment to God.